This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Eric Rosenberg from Personal Profitability. And when I'm not busy hustling my tuchus off, I am stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today is the birthday of the man we show off on the $5 bill, Mr. Abraham Lincoln. Just think, if he was worth 95 bucks more, this could have been the Stacking Lincoln Show math wizard right here but what better way to celebrate honest abe's birthday than by answering your questions including what do you do when you're five years away from retirement and how do restricted stock units work what's a good strategy around diversification but before joe and og get to the questions we're going to talk about some of the recent changes to the credit scoring system during our headline segment and of course We'll save room for my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who think Lincoln is only a city in Nebraska, which is funny because we all know that's in Oregon. Joe and O. Everybody knows Lincoln's a city in Utah. Hello. It's a uh, name of a park near Chicago. It's obvious. It's a name of a band, not a park. Lincoln Park is a band. Well, maybe the park is owned by a guy named Lincoln, then the one in Chicago. It's got to be. Maybe it's Lincoln's Park. It's plural or possessive. I'm not sure. Hey, welcome to the Lincoln Confusion Podcast. My name's Joe Saul Cihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and back for an incredible Wednesday episode. We haven't done one of these letters episodes in a while. It's my friend OG. What's shaking? I can't wait to dive into a basket of mail. Look at all these letters and not a stamp on one of them. And they still found us. I don't know. That's postal fraud. I don't know. We didn't do it. It wasn't us. We're, we're just, we're the receiver. That, that it wasn't, it wasn't us. What if you could take all this mail though and, and kind of streamline it? Would that be awesome? Like put it in a stream, like a stream of water? Like a streamer? Yeah. Just like you can hold them up and it's there, like a big giant kite. There it is. Well, like a big giant kite for your debt consolidation. Big thanks to Lightstream for supporting Stacky Benjamins. That one was difficult. Pay off your credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get the discount is to go to lightstream.com slash SB. It's because you know us, you know, because you know us, you get a discount. You're welcome, world. I almost said America, but we're worldwide both listeners in different countries. 
thanks also to Masterclass for supporting Stacking Benjamins. I'm giving a Masterclass right now on Segways. You can find hundreds of video lessons from today's most brilliant minds. How they missed OG is beyond me. But anyway, today's most brilliant minds available anytime, anywhere on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV. Get 15% off your annual all-access pass at masterclass.com forward slash stacking. I got to tell you, man, love me some masterclass. We've got a masterclass in answering your letters. OG has not seen any of these yet. I'm going to try to sabotage him at every turn, see if we can trip him up. It's never happened. But today's going to be the history day. History podcasts T- never happened. Today, never will. Today could be the day. Will's, he's not even sweating. He should be sweating, but he's not. Let's do some headlines first. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Investment News. This piece is written by Emil Halez. Emil writes, Roth 401ks could get a boost from the SECURE Act. Let's dive into it. The Secure Act, of course, we did a full episode about the Secure Act. You can hear that. Uh, we'll have a link to it in our show notes page if you want to know more. But one thing, OG, it says, is the death of the stretch IRA, which happened in the Secure Act, could lead to wider use of a savings feature that's often neglected in company-sponsored retirement plans, the Roth 401k. While most employers that offer 401ks include a Roth option, less than a quarter of participants opt for a Roth when it's made available. Like their individual retirement account counterparts, Roth 401ks can yield future tax savings for highly compensated workers or others who anticipate facing higher tax liabilities in their retirement years. The recently passed SECURE Act did away with the stretch provision that allowed young beneficiaries to gradually take distributions from inherited IRAs over the course of their lives. Now many beneficiaries must take distributions within 10 years, which can lead to higher tax consequences in a short time frame. I don't want to go too much into the stretch IRA. I think that's kind of 201. Well, we could do that next. But first, OG, only a quarter of the people out there using the Roth portion of their 401k, even before the SECURE Act, I think that's a mistake. I think it's really interesting. I look at these as two kind of mutually exclusive things because- your decision around putting money in your 401k pre-tax, the traditional side, or Roth after tax, should be unique to you. And the whole estate planning and gifting and who's going to get my money when I die thing, that's a secondary issue with historically low tax rates. You know, you're trying to decide where should I pay my taxes? Should I pay them today or should I pay them tomorrow? And we don't know what tomorrow's going to look like. Well, what we do know, one of the facts of the case right now is that we're historically in a low spot. So it seems like probably for a lot of people, this would be the place that you would want to pay your taxes, knowing that you've got to pay them one way or the other. Pay them today right now. Um, yeah, just get it over with. Not to mention you get it over with. For some people, highly compensated folks that are at the top tax bracket or very near the top, probably deferring could make sense. But for the vast majority of people, dare I say normal people, you know, for the vast majority of people, I think that you should take a look at the Roth. What I find really interesting, the angle on this is I have so few people that have passed away that have this be a really big issue. That's Beneficiaries a- are really stupid with money because it's not theirs. They don't care. It feels like a windfall, even though maybe your parent worked their butt off to get that money in place. To you, right. it feels like free money. Yeah. So guess what? People are taking it out anyway. 
Yeah. They're going to take it out before the 10 years anyway. So we do have some people that have inherited IRAs that are stretching it out over a long period of time. But I mean, if you're in your 30s and you're in your 40s and you're thinking about like the estate planning impacts of your deferred plan, stop. You can glancingly think about it when you think about your estate plan and kind of net worth and like what that looks like. But if you're in your 30s, 40s, I'd even say 50s right now, and you're like, well, man, I don't know. I should probably do, you know, do this because if my kids inherit it, they're going to start. Listen, if your kids inherit money anytime soon from you and you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, they're going to blow it. The only people who stretch out IRAs are people that inherit money when they're 70 because yeah. they're already set. Yeah. Uh, mom died at 95 or 90 years old. They're not worried about it. Stretch it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I did like you. I kind of started laughing. I'm like, really? So this is gonna this is the thing that's gonna make the Roth 401k finally use the death of the stretch provision. Like, I think that's a yeah, bunch of no. that's a bunch of finance nerds going, oh man, this is gonna change the. It ain't gonna change anything. It's not gonna change the game at all. But we should be doing the Roth 401k anyway. That is the big takeaway, I think. Here, use the use the Roth. What are you waiting for? Our second headline comes to us from NPR. FICO score is about to change credit scores. You see this? Here's why it matters. This was on All Things Considered and written by Chris Arnold. Your credit score can determine whether you can buy a car, get certain jobs, or rent an apartment. It's a big deal. And so is this. Credit scores for many Americans are about to change, even if they don't do anything. The changes will be extensive. About 40 million Americans are likely to see their credit scores drop by 20 points or more. Oh boy, OG, you're in big trouble now. You're sporting that like 350 credit score right now. That's false. Up from 275. <laughs> yeah. Not true. Not true. Not true, people. That's good. Just being silly, silly. That's going to head back down. They're going to see their credit scores drop by 20 points or more, but an equal number should go up by as much, according to Joanne Gaskin, uh, vice president of scores and analytics at FICO, company the heart of the credit scoring system. Every five years or so, FICO updates the way it determines credit scores. This time, the biggest change is in how it treats personal loans, Gaskin says. Personal loans growing faster than any other consumer debt category. I was waiting, I was waiting to see what's going to happen. So what's happening with the personal loans? Because everybody uses them. That's the thing. For the first time, Gaskin says FICO is breaking out personal loans as a distinct category to determine whether borrowers use them responsibly. I see. Yep. Uh, so let's say you pay off your credit cards with a personal loan. Under the old system, your credit score might go up, but under the new approach, they're going to look back over a period of time to see whether you've used that loan to reduce your high interest credit card debt or whether you're just using plastic the same way you used to, which is why it's mm -hmm. funny that we've got Lightstream on today's show with us. It's a two-part yeah. process. Use a great lender. That's step one. But step two is you got to fix the problem. I remember this guy in my office, a financial planner named Paul, and he helped these people do this phenomenal debt consolidation strategy. He freed up like $600 a month, if I remember right. And the strategy was continue paying that out. But now they were going to pay it into cash reserves right. and investments yeah. for their, their retirement. All of a sudden, they were going to start building stuff. Step one was the debt consolidation. Between the debt consolidation and the responsible investing meeting, they bought a new boat and they had no money. So they bought it on payments and they knew that they had $600 a month. So guess what the new boat payment was? $550. $599, yeah. Just, just 
don't do that. Oh, look at that. We got $600 a month. No, no, you didn't. So just let me clarify. I do or I don't get to get a boat. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, to get rid of the craziness, as we mentioned before, Lightstream to the rescue for part of this, for part of this, because of the fact if you're paying a lot of money on interest and credit cards every month and it's about time to cut the cycle, one part of that is to consolidate them into one payment at a fixed rate instead of this rate that's all over the place. And instead of paying 50 different payments to 50 different places, make it one. Why not consolidate your credit cards into one place and start then saving money instead of going to buy the boat? It's easy to consolidate with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Rates are as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay. That rate, of course, much lower than the national average interest rate on credit cards, which is, you know, a G is over 20% APR. Get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 with absolutely zero fees. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Looking through these uh, customer testimonials, I like this one. I heard about Lightstream through a radio program advertisement. I'm so glad I had the courage to reach out and try their service. Top-notch customer support and service, very streamlined process, and no issues or regrets. Just for stackers, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. I thought this was cool. Just because you listen to the show. So already, you're trying to fix the problem. We're going to help you make it a little easier to fix it. But remember, you still have to, have to get rid of the problem, spending money on the credit cards. The first step, consolidate that out, cut them up, live a cash lifestyle. The only way to get that discount, go to lightstream.com slash SB. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com slash SB. Of course, here comes the stuff that the uh, legal people make you say. Subject credit approval. Rate includes half a percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and otters offers are subject otters. Offers and otters are subject to change. <laughs> what happens if Lightstream changes all the otters? They're subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash SB for more information. And I think that is a good takeaway. Get your credit card debt under control. Now's a great time. And with them changing the FICO score, it's going to get worse if you don't work at making it better sooner rather than later. And then the uh, second headline, Roth 401k. Probably a good idea for a lot of people not using it. Well, normally we'd be introducing a guest at this juncture, but today our guest is you because we've got a stack of questions from you. We're going to start with this one from Tim. We were talking earlier, OG, about the Roth. And I like uh, Tim's question here. This is kind of a long one. Got a 401k question, been racking his brain for weeks. He said he was scrolling to his feed and heard we were having a letters episode. So he pulled off to the side of the highway to ask the question. He said, the rest of the people on the plane aren't very pleased, but it's my financial future on the line. So I don't care. Nice. Tim's attempt to humor. Nice job, Mm -hmm. Tim. His quandary. As of January 1st, he has a Roth option in his 401k, like we were just talking about. Previously, he's been contributing 20% to the pre-tax 401k. 
He's tweaking his contribution. He's currently putting 17% to the Roth and zero to the traditional in an effort to keep his take-home pay about the same. So he's cut back just a little bit so that he he has the same exact out-of-pocket budget. Because, OG, oh just to stop that for a second, if you switch to the Roth, you're going to see less money in your paycheck. Exactly, because you're not deferring those taxes anymore. You're paying them today. I'm honestly unsure if this is the best move and what I should be considering. Should I be looking at maximizing after-tax contribution now with tax-free, hopefully, lifetime growth? Should I be trying to beat down my taxable income and let a traditional 401k grow and worry about the taxes later? Should I not care about any of this and carpet some DM in the fear that we... (laughs) That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That we should, uh, I, 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 I like Tim's joke so much, I got lost in it. Where the heck am I? Should I carpet some DM in the fear that we have yet to feel the true ramifications of Y2K? <laughs> my employer's 3% contribution match goes traditional regardless of where I put my money. Uh, that's everybody, by the way, Tim, not just you. Yep. It, it has to go everybody. to pretext. My stats, 38, single filing single, standard deduction, no defendants, current weekly gross of uh, 11 68 profit sharing that if I extrapolate upon the most recent bonus of ballpark around $6,000 this year, I also sacrifice one trip to the sizzler a week in order to put $15 a week into a Roth IRA. If I left anything else pertinent out, let me know. I need to get this flight back in the air. Thanks. Oh, and when you see Paul on Friday, tell her I said hi. Will do, Tim. Thanks for the letter. So he's wondering about using the Roth most effectively. Well, and relative to his tax rates. So again, when I think that you look at where we are today in a tax system, the tax environment that we are versus in the future, you're trying to make some guesses. You're trying to decide, is it better to pay the taxes today or is it better to have that money grow and pay taxes later? Nobody knows what the future is going to hold. I mean, that's a guess by anybody. You're going to know that you're right later on down the line. So it's probably best to have a little bit of both. Since you're contributing on the Roth side, you have the Roth IRA going and your employer is contributing on the pre-tax side, I think that's a reasonable mix. You know, based on your income, you're in a low tax bracket already. You can't get much lower than low. So, you know, pay the taxes at today's low rate. To some degree, I think that people overthink this. I like taking advantage of tax rates now because I don't know if they're going to go lower in the future. I don't know if they're going to go up. I don't know what's going to happen. So I, I like the one, the bird in the hand. But I also like the idea of giving myself some flexibility later. And the more you can do with the Roth, the more flexibility you give yourself down the road as you're taking money out. I think, though, regardless of this, I think too many people neglect not the Roth that we've been talking about a lot on today's show. I think they neglect the after-tax regular brokerage account. I think everybody gets so worried about tax shelters, they forget about flexibility, OG. I like having a little money that's growing that, yeah, okay, there's going to be a little bit of friction, right, with taxes, but I like having some money in a spot where I can take it out without having to ask permission from my uncle in Washington. Flexibility is really important, especially if you have any sort of desire to retire prior to the normal, air quotes, retirement age. And you never know what the future is going to hold. The good news about a Roth 401k and a Roth IRA is that you have the ability to, if you do run into some snags or you do need some flexibility, you have the ability to take that money out without any penalties, those contributions. Now, you can't do that on your Roth 401k. You have to move that into an IRA at some point. But, you know, there's a little bit of leeway. And here's the thing. If you saved 
25% of your income and put it into the worst place imaginable. I wish that I could find this uh, article. I, I know who did it. I should just look it up. But it was it was an article of buying the max 401k contributions for that year on the worst day of the year in the S&P, right? So you've got all the days charted out and you've got the, it's basically the story of the world's worst market timer. He always buys on the worst possible day, which would be the high water mark. So he's always buying on the high water mark of the year. He's trying to day trade it. The simple fact of actually saving the money is the impactful thing. Yeah. You don't have to even get the investing timing right. So you have to be right on your investment. You don't have to be right in your tax shelter. You have to be right at any of that stuff. What you have to do is put away 20 or 25% of your comp every year. It's like do the thing and everything else will just work itself out. Great question, Tim. Thanks for that. Let's move on to a fun one here from uh, Trevor. Trevor left us a note on Instagram. He said that he'd like us to talk about, have, have we ever taken any moonshots and, and how did they go? And by moonshots, he doesn't Tesla mean- Tesla options, baby. He doesn't mean mooning people. What he means is, have we ever just taken a flyer on anything? So- um, Yes, uh, I have. I have, two, I have two stories, both me and someone dear to me. Both cautionary tales? Uh. Kind of. So my wife, her uncle is a really smart guy and was the chief financial officer of two really big companies. His second company that he was the CFO for uh, didn't do so great for a really long time and kept on doing worse and then worse and then worser and then worsest. (laughs) It was, you know, a penny stock at one point almost. So I bought some stock in the company, a small amount, let's say 200 bucks worth, or I'm sorry, 200 shares worth, which was probably 200 bucks worth. And when it got to like $5 a share, I was like, heck yeah, dollar bills, ring the register, I'm out. Now what my wife's uncle had done was he had given all of his siblings shares also. So my in-laws are now by proxy part of this deal, right? And so they're like, hey, what do you think? Hey, what do you think? Hey, what? I said, I don't know, do whatever Tim says, you know? Well, Tim can't say anything, he's a CFO. What do you think? I said, listen, he gave you the stock worth $10,000. I'm just making the numbers up. It was, you know, say $10 a share. It went down to $2 a share. It's at $20 a share. I mean, I'm no day trading expert, but a free 100% cha-ching. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. Let's just wait out. They, they got to, it got to 25. What do you think? I said, geez, I don't know. It got to 30. I told you what I thought. They said, you know what? You're right. Let's sell. We're selling out at 30. Fast forward a couple of years, uncle's in town for family visit, and he says, hey, you guys are still holding all your stock, right? And we're like, uh, yeah, well, yeah, you know, he says, well, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but it's it's up to 300 a share now. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Womp, 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 womp. <laughs> That's why I like... <laughs> Alex, so one thing I did was in the early days of uh, XM Radio, I bought some XM stock for about uh, $2.50, and I rode that to 30 and I sold part of it because I still liked satellite radio at the time. So I sold off a chunk of it, and I said, okay, I'm going to diversify. 
And I took the parts I was diversifying and I believed in satellite radio so much, but there were only two companies. I thought one of these companies is going to succeed. One won't succeed, but I know one, one, one of these two companies is going to succeed. So I'm going to buy the other one with the proceeds. I bought the other one. They merged. They brought on a bunch of talent, Howard Stern, Martha Stewart, a bunch of other people loaded up on debt and the thing went all the way back down. So no diversification, complete idiocy on my part. The one thing I didn't think was that the two companies would become one XM serious. That was not good. Yeah. That just reminds me, like anytime we talk about individual stocks, it reminds me of the Warren Buffett piece about his favorite holding time period is forever. Because if you really believe that from an organization standpoint, that that company is going to continue to do well, why would you ever sell it? You know, because in theory, people are still going to be buying burgers from McDonald's in 10 years from now at an ever increasing clip. There'll be more people and burgers will cost more and they'll keep on, you know, just. But the thing is, is that you don't know whether or not McDonald's will be around. See, that's the, you, don't, yeah. you don't know if it's going to be McDonald's or Wendy's that wins or even if that. You know, that burger, maybe it's just only Chipotle from now on. And that's, you know? and that's the individual stock piece where now you're in the fundamental analysis around that company. Like I'm thinking about the uncle's company yeah. that you were saying earlier, you know, some fundamental analysis around what's cash flow look like? What's the, you know. Sure. But you're always going to kick yourself. That's the thing. You can sure. never win. Sure. Because if you buy it at 10 and sell it at 30, you're a genius until it goes to 60. We should also define for people what percentage of our portfolio we're talking about because I never do these moves with much money at all. I think that uh, I think I put 2000 bucks originally into XM stock. So, you know. Yeah, I'm on the other side. I use a ton of leverage, so I'm actually <laughs> have way more than what actually my portfolio is worth. He uses 900% of his. I, bet. I was going to say, yeah, depending on the day, depending on the margin call, I'm either between 500 and a thousand percent of the value of my portfolio. But in all seriousness, I'm I know, kidding. yes, I know that you do the same thing you tell your clients, which is, Hey, if you want to have a little sandbox, fine, fine. Yeah. And you've got your little sandbox. Just only also. use your cash reserve money for it. I'll tell you, uh, a, a, also kidding. <laughs> a positive, a positive story that I did well, uh, that I did really well was that and this is this is way early in my career, after the Berlin Wall fell, and uh, you had all of Eastern Mar- Eastern European markets opening. I was looking for investments in the late 1990s to get in on what was an exploding bunch of economies in the late 90s. Like, of course, we had the technology stuff here, but I was looking for other areas that were not the same. So part of my fun was I used the Austrian index. Good day, mate. The other one, but yes. I used I used the Austrian stock market as a proxy because in Austria there are a bunch of construction companies that do a bunch of work in just right across in Eastern Europe. And so I ended up making a bunch of money off the Austrian index. Uh, I also did the same thing with the Singapore index right after the absolutely devastating tsunami that happened. And and I want to define something here. I don't want to make money off of a catastrophe, but what I do want to do is make money off of the idiots who think that you sell during a catastrophe 
And the Singapore Exchange, surrounded by a lot of barrier islands, nothing happened there. Shipping was going to be maybe disrupted to some places, but they were going to need to rebuild, which meant that Singapore was going to see a lot of that. So I went in and bought the Singapore Exchange with some of my play money as well and did well there. I learned early on, though, about how important it was to have your stock listed on an exchange. I had heard about this little penny stock called Ultimate Sports, and it was a company that was doing these cartoons and was involving lots of pro athletes. And hey, the company sounded great. The price was incredibly low, but it wasn't listed. It was what's called a pink sheet which means you go directly to the broker. So I placed the trade and immediately found out what stock manipulation was all about, (laughs) what pump and dump schemes are Mm -hmm. and, uh, and how, and this stock was all over the place to the point that the CEO of the company was suing people who he thought were pumping and dumping. But as you know, OG, if you're not on an exchange, there are a bunch of people that do that and they're very hard to prosecute. The exchange is really the police that makes sure that uh, that, that doesn't yep. happen. So uh, I got just hammered, and I will never buy a pink sheet again, no matter how great it looks. That'll learn you, huh? Don't care what the story is. I don't know as much as the dude who's about to manipulate me. <laughs> exactly. So uh, Exactly right. Thanks for that question, Trevor. All right, we've got a few more questions here. You know what? I'm going to do uh, one. There was there was a couple of, uh, of funny ones. Ron asks us a question about the Super Bowl. Uh, Shakira or J-Lo? Uh, who is better, OG? Ooh, um, I think Shakira. I have to say I did not watch. I've, I've heard all the controversy, all the, you know, people loved it, people hated it. I just, I just missed it. I walked out of the room, got involved in something else and came back and people were even at the thing I was at, people were even talking about it. It was, the party was a house divided, loved it, hated it. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I had to pick one. Hard hitting question. I think we're going to end there for now. We got a couple other though, fantastic questions on the way, but first I think it's time for Doug to take over while we get a little water. Hey, stackers, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and since it's Honest Dave's birthday and all, I've decided to take a page out of old Abe Lincoln's book and be more honest with everyone in the basement. Who else is going to tell Joe about that zit on his nose or the that OG really needs to shed a few pounds in the old midsection, know what I mean? Or that Joe's mom really shouldn't be wearing those jeans. Seriously, it's an affront to my eyes. Before I go and make America truthful again, here's today's trivia. In celebration of his birthday, how about some Abe Lincoln trivia, huh? Where did Abe Lincoln get his law degree? I'll be back with the answer as soon as I get back from my Spreading the Truth tour. Wish me luck! Well, today's show is brought to you by a company that I have learned so much from, Masterclass. It is incredible how incredible these masterclass things are OG and, and and number one and I know this shouldn't be important but we do know that when it comes to any type of communication right anybody that has taken a communication class in college knows there's a sender and a receiver and there's friction between the two 
you've done master classes and I've done master classes, the production of these classes are fantastic. It's very good. Yeah, the production value, like it is very, very clear what you're about to learn. And uh, I don't just audio I just wondered quality. like who came up with it. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious, like how that first pitch went to the first person. Like, hey, here's the idea. We've got all these people that are we want on. But we We're need one ask. to say but yes. We need you to say yes first. Yeah. So, because now anybody would do it. Oh, right? it's fantastic. You know. Yeah. But if you don't know what Masterclass is, Masterclass lets you learn from the best. I took uh, drama writing with uh, Aaron Sorkin to help improve my writing. OG took uh, negotiation from Chris Voss. There are so many. I'm in the middle. Take it. I watched it. Well, I'm actually taking the the cooking ones. Those are ones are really good. The cooking ones, yeah, awesome stuff. Classes taught by masters of their craft. You can even do scientific thinking and communication from Neil deGrasse Tyson as an example. Comedy from Steve Martin. Running a business from uh, the Devil Wears Prada woman herself, Anna Wintour. Over seventy five exclusive classes taught by the masters you know and love. It's an app accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV that offers classes in a wide variety of topics, all taught by world-class masters at the top of their field. Every class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, all of which you can explore at your own pace. So whether you're interested in TV writing, game design, investigative journalism, or French pastry fundamentals, there's a master class for you. Lessons, each one, are about 10 to 15 minutes, and there's a lot of them with each Lesson all access passes $180 a year. Single classes are 90. I feel like I got that value in about 15 minutes. Also, the lesson recaps and supplemental materials are incredible. You could probably talk to this OG, but my script here says cooking classes come with beautiful downloadable guides that are all the level of a high-end cookbook. Mm -hmm. Yep, agree. Cinema quality classes we talked about earlier give you unparalleled access to a renowned master show you everything from how to execute a technique to their insights into the craft that can be translated across many fields in disciplines. Users give Masterclass an average rating of 4.7 out of 5 stars, but just in case you're not completely satisfied, they also have a 30-day money-back guarantee on the all-access pass. So, I highly recommend that you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass, and as a stacker, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash stacking. That's masterclass.com slash stacking for 15% off Masterclass. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Back with your answer. Your trivia answer, that is. But before I do that, get this. While I was giving honest Truthful feedback to everyone down here in the basement, which has not been well received, by the way. I don't know what everybody's problem is. You're not going to believe this. I found a loose $5 bill sitting on the ground right under OG's chair. I know I'm supposed to be honest and all, but I also remember that famous Abraham Lincoln quote, $5 found is $5 earned. That doesn't even sound made up, does it? Nope, I didn't just make that up on the spot. So, in the spirit of the old president, 
I think I should probably keep this $5 and maybe keep it between us, you know? Speaking of Abe Lincoln, though, here's the answer to today's trivia question. Where did Abe get his law degree? From which school? The answer? Well, Lincoln always practiced law without a degree. Well, see, there you go. Who needs a degree? That seems a little dishonest, doesn't it? I think the big scheme of things, pocketing this five bucks doesn't seem that bad. Not as bad as practicing law without a degree. But I'm still going to make my honesty mark here in the basement by making sure that starting today, we're all a little more truthful. See ya! Lots more letters here. Let's dive into another one, OG. How about this? This one comes to us from Samantha. Samantha says she's five years away from retirement. I get a pension and social security supplement at that time. However, my job's not secure. Should I continue to put as much money in my 401k as I can, knowing I may have to pay the penalty or stop contributing and stash cash? I have about one year worth of expenses in a money market. I live in a low cost living area. My job's very specialized. So getting another job that pays as well without moving would be impossible. I have no debt, including my home. The money in my 403B is in a guaranteed interest account, so the account is stable. What would you do? Thanks. I'm guessing here, OG, before you answer, when she talks about a penalty, the only penalty is if she's retiring early, and then there may not be a penalty depending on her how her 403B works. Maybe we need to explain that to Samantha a little bit. Yeah, she said 401K, then she said 403B. There's a lot of missing links here, I think. So if you're going to retire before age 59 and a half and you're worried that you don't have enough money, I would suggest that you keep working and don't retire early. Like if you can, right? If you're going to retire because your job is about to force you out and you're going to get an early retirement or something like that, and that may be what she's talking about here, It sounds like without any debt and living in a low-cost area, a pension and a Social Security supplement until Social Security kicks in at 62, that might be adequate for living expenses. But once you get past 55 and you're retired, there is no penalty to take money out of your workplace plan. We think of 59 and a half as the cutoff on the early retirement or the early penalty, which are all the 10% penalty. But as long as you are retired and you take your money out of your workplace plan, i.e. don't roll it over to an IRA, then there's no penalty. Also, there's ways to get at your workplace plans or all of your qualified plans for that matter before 59 and a half and as early as you want them if you do it the right way. It's called a 72T transaction. So I think you, you have to recognize that, number one, everything's available Uh, And number two, if you have any choice in the matter and you're concerned about it and you're going to retire early and it's voluntary, I would consider keep working. You know, that's kind of what I would think about. So, you know, I want to address another thing that Samantha talks about that she didn't ask us about, which is her 403B asset allocation. She said she has it all in a stable value fund. I think that is a big mistake. Now, if you don't have any risk tolerance at all, and you can afford to leave your money there, then maybe that's fine. However, I think a stable value fund is fantastic if you're going to use the money in the next few years. Historically, though, if you want some of that money to last 10 years or longer, 
take that portion and put it in investments that have a history of doing well over that time frame. I think that's a, a more prudent way to invest and frankly, more conservative because the bad news with the stable value fund is that over long periods of time, stable value funds generally don't beat inflation. And so you very safely never go anywhere in a stable value fund. And I would rather... Oh, yeah, see, you go somewhere to zero. I would rather see... I would much, much rather see you increase your purchasing power instead of seeing it going away. So I would I would recommend rethinking having all your money in the stable value fund in the mm. in the 403B. In, in, unless, of course, OG, she's going to spend it right away. And I don't... You know, there's not enough here. But... Yeah, I kind of stayed away from that one. But that's probably... Gosh, that's such a horrible place to put your money. Yeah. But of course, as soon as she invests it, this is Murphy's Law, as soon as you invest it, it's it, going to go down 10%, it, just so you know. Yes, yes. Immediately. doesn't matter. Yes. Yeah. And it will be just for her, too. The rest of the market will keep going up, that 30% a year. <laughs> of She'll course. notice hers go down. Our next question is, by the way, thanks for that question, Samantha. Next question comes from Lloyd. Lloyd says, how should you handle the vesting of restricted stock units? Typically, companies offer three options, sell all the stock, pay the taxes and keep all the stock, or sell some shares to cover the taxes on the stock. He says, personally, I think selling all the stock and using the proceeds to fund Roth IRAs and taxable accounts in a diversified total stock market fund is best. Thanks for that question, Lloyd. All but the last phrase that sentence. Correct. It's fine. Makes taking me it all, puke the last little bit. Taking it all and putting it in one fund not for me. Yeah. You know, when it comes to restricted stocks, so this is going around these days, right? Companies give you bonuses. They give you uh, restricted shares as a bonus. They vest over a period of time. And when they vest, that's when you owe the taxes. If it's a few bucks and you can write the check for the taxes, by all means, keep the stock or, you know, whatever, sell the stock and invest it however you want. What happens is, is that if you get too much restricted shares where your company does really well, now you start talking about some really big things. There was just an article a couple of weeks ago about the guy who owns Amazon, Jeff Bezos, selling like $1.8 billion worth of stock. I assume that some of that were, was in restricted shares. And when he gets his restricted shares, his have a lot more zeros on it than you or I would have. And so, of course, he has the money to pay the tax also. So I don't know. But the risk you run is you end up getting a bigger and bigger percentage of your overall investment pie tied up in one singular thing. And your job is also tied there too. So it becomes increasingly more perilous. So having a diversification strategy or a divesting strategy, I think is really important. What uh, we see a lot of people do is like you said, is simply when they come due, they sell the shares to pay the taxes. They receive the rest of them. And then sell the the rest of the position on that day. If you believe in your organization and you think that from a appreciation standpoint, you might have a leg up versus other competitors or or the economy as a whole, and you want to hold some, that's fine too. But I don't think that you want to get north of ten percent of your overall investment net worth tied up in any company, let alone your the one that's also employing you. We talked about earlier when OG was talking about his moonshot, talked about that company that went from 30 to 300. Um, that can always happen. I always think that diversifying it is a sound approach. And it's not about getting rich tomorrow. It's about holding on to your money. I think holding it and growing it responsibly, I think, Lloyd, you're right on. 
but to OG's point, if there's something about the company that you really, really like, you've gone through some fundamental analysis and you clearly have a front row seat, what's going there, just watch how much of it you keep in one company. Thanks for the question, Lloyd. Next question comes to us from Jason. Jason asks, Monopoly, great game or the greatest game? <laughs> them's, them's fighting words for you. It, it totally is. Jason doesn't know this, but Jason, I think Monopoly sucks. Uh, I, don't, I don't like board games. Welcome to the Board Game Podcast. I don't like board games that have a lot of player elimination. Most people don't play by the real rules. When you play by the real Monopoly rules in the actual game, Monopoly can be an okay game, but there are way, way, way funner games out there, Jason, way funner games and funner games about money. Uh, Speculation is a good game about money. Stockpile, another good uh, money oriented game. Some of the good games about building businesses, Viticulture, Mm -hmm. it's a good game. Power Grid, good game. Monopoly, not so much. So agree to disagree, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's do this, OG. Let's throw out the Haven Lifeline while we're taking questions and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Listening to Kesha while recording podcasts. I was going to say a good red wine and a good board game. Or that. (laughs) The answer that's written here is your loved ones in your time, but you would have way more fun with your loved ones in your time with Kesha in the background playing board games and drinking wine. And wine. That's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. It is super simple, super online. Like we were saying on Monday, they've already shortened the process. You don't have to wait forever for somebody to come to your house and do a extensive physical. Prices are affordable. Uh, and of course, their policies are issued by Mass Mutual, an insurer that's more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to our friend, Tori. Say hi, Tori. Hi there, Joe, OG, and Doug. I have some questions about what to do with my house. We have $67,000 left on the loan, and I would estimate it appraises for about $250,000. We're moving five hours away, which in this state like Texas is not that far. My question is, should we hold on to our house and rent via a property management company? Our neighbors are renting their house for $1,400 a month, and they pay the property management company 10% of the rent. If we rent ours out for that amount, we would not be making much money, but it would cover the entire mortgage. Here's a few more questions. Could we use the equity in the house to buy our next house? Should we rent when we get to the next city? Should we sell our house and take the equity of $180,000 and buy a house where the average house is about $300,000? Thanks for nothing, because I know I won't learn anything. Please say hi to mom for me. Yeah. We will do that, Tori. Thanks for the question. And what a great question. We had that when we moved from Michigan to Texas uh, ourselves. So, OG, what do you think? Does she hold on to it or does she she sell it? I do think it's funny that, uh, did she say that she's from Texas? No, she said her state like Texas. So five hours. states like Texas. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, it's, uh, we were talking about that at dinner the other day. It was... A five-hour drive in the same state is going to be maybe three states out there. You can do that? Four? It depends on how fast you drive, I suppose. Right. But well, you were talking well, about that at dinner. Yeah, just how it's pretty normal to 
you know, jump in the car and zip down from Dallas to Houston. It's only four and a half hours or whatever for dinner. Gives me a whole different viewpoint of Lansing from the basement here. It sure does, doesn't it? <laughs> you could get, you could go. I mean, I've actually driven to Houston and back in one day, like yeah. in a one day trip. And that would be like the equivalent of driving from Toledo to the Mackinac Bridge and back. And back. And, and no one would ever do that in a million years ever. in Michigan or Ohio. They'd be like, you're doing what? Ever. Why? Like, yes. you know, to have dinner. Yeah. See you my kidding? friends for the day. I got to drive an hour to Lansing? Yeah. yeah forget Hard pass. it. Yeah. So I think that a lot of this is going to boil down to what's your personal, you know, what's your personal cash flow like? You know, are you moving to a town and you make a couple hundred grand and, you know, you can go buy a house and be done with it? If you need the money from your existing house to be able to put a reasonable down payment on the next house or to make a reasonable effort at having a normal payment on the next house, then I think it's really important that you think about that. If you think that, hey, someday we might actually move back to the town that we're in. We like where we are. We have to move for this reason, but we might actually come back. And it wouldn't be nice if we came back to a paid for home. You know, I think that tips the scales toward keeping it and having somebody else pay for it. I think regardless, if you're unfamiliar with the area, if you're moving five hours away and you've done your research and you're like, I think this is the you know subdivision I like or whatever, I don't think it hurts at all to rent for a short period of time. It costs almost nothing to keep all your stuff in storage. You can rent a place for under probably under a thousand bucks a month, even a short term six month lease. And you get a real sense of you know, what the commutes like to work and what the, you know, what the, what the schools are like, where the kids are going to go and where the grocery store is and just kind of that stuff that you, you, you don't really get a sense of until you get into a community. So I would, I would be a huge advocate for that anyways, but the rest of the stuff I think is going to depend on, on those other variables. Yeah. I, my, my bent is always toward keeping the house if you can, but if you don't have much liquidity and you don't have much money in other places, having this asset that's in one physical location becomes a big part of your net worth that, uh, that is just going to grow with the price of uh, houses in that area. I like the fact they don't have much of a mortgage on there yet uh, anymore, yeah. OG. I mean, you know, that's going to be paid off in not all that long. And then they'll have the cash flow from the renter as well. So I get excited about hearing that. But that definitely depends, to your point, on liquidity. I totally agree. On the other side, on the, on the renting versus buying in the new place, I agree with everything you said. But, but a point that I think is that um, there's also kind of a personal thing here, which is how long are you going to be there? I think renting a house, if you're going to be in this new town only for, let's say, five years, not a great idea. If it's going to be a you're permanent- buying a house. Yes. Sorry. What did I say? You said renting. Oh, did I? Yeah. Well, no, because renting, if you're going to be there, you know, five years, six years less. Oh, then you're saying buy one. At five years is your cutoff? I'd say five years is the earliest. You know, I'd be much happier with seven or eight before you, you think about buying. But even then, I don't think renting is a horrible choice, partly because of the fact- Even for long term. Yeah. All the things that go wrong on your house, somebody else gets to fix- you don't have all of those costs. I mean, you don't have to go outside and do all the outside lawn stuff to keep up with the Joneses next door, you know, keep up with the neighborhood. You don't worry about all the different bills because a lot of them are included 
depending on where you rent and how you rent, but you could save some serious money on home maintenance and property taxes. Well, people don't actually think about that when you're renting. And and you hear this all the time. People that are renters, like young people who are trying to move up to buy a house, they're like, yeah, I'm losing money. I could be rent. I'm renting this apartment for 1500 bucks. I could go get a house for 1200 a month. It's like, no, 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 no. It's 1200 a month. Plus you have extra square footage. <laughs> so you have to heat it and cool it. Plus the roof goes and leaks from time to time. Plus, plus, plus that $1,500 is walk away. You know, it's like, here's my 1500 bucks. I'm out for the month. Like, I have no more responsibilities on this property whatsoever other than next month I got to come up with another 1500 There's some really, really, really powerful feelings <laughs> with, with the like, yeah, I'm out. I got my, here's my money for the month, you know? I've got the most uh, crazy thing happening at my house right now. Up at the roof line, the ledge on the inside, there are these uh, soffits. At some point when it got cold, I just noticed it, but it had to have been when it got cold. Bird, some animal, something, ripped one out. And now I have some type of animal, I'm sure, living in my roof inside the, the space up there in my attic. But then also I've got to repair that soffit, which is way up high and it's 15 flipping degrees. I have no idea who to call. <laughs> Doing it myself is not something I'm excited about. If I rented this house, to my point, I make a phone yeah, call. Pick I make, up a phone call. I make one. It's somebody yeah. else's problem. Like I'm dealing right. with. I'm dealing with that this weekend, and it's not going to be fun. So that's one of many crazy little things. But I also get it on the other side, don't you? Like if somebody really wants to own a house, assuming you're going to be there long term. I can get that behind that feeling, but realize that's not an investment decision that's going to pull from your investments. People say, right. well, my house is my investment. No, no, it's not. It's a horrible investment. You should make a good investment decision, but but no. And I thought we'd end on this one. Oh, gee, this, this one comes from Gregory. My question is, he says, how did Joe get into financial planning? He said, it's, it hardly seems inevitable coming from a farming family, majoring in English, hearing about his having to learn some financial lessons the hard way. What made him aware of this as a career option? What made him choose it as a career? What made him leave? For that matter, I'm curious what OG would say too. This is fun. We haven't talked nice, about this. Nice throwaway at the very yeah. end. Oh, by the way, I'm really OG can answer. about Joe, but uh, oh yeah, that other, whoever else that other <laughs> guy is. Whoever. Yeah, yeah. How did, how did you get into financial planning? When did you decide it would be a good career? Oh no, the question wasn't for me, man. I Come was on. an afterthought. The question's about you. So let me tell you, you worked at a bank. Weren't you a bank teller at one point? Yes. Early on? Yeah. Yes. And did that spring into, I'd rather be the person selling these high-priced investments across the... Again, I feel like the question was pointed at you. It does not matter. I'm asking you the question here. Why do I have to be on the hot seat? Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty much what happened. I, I'd always worked in some sort of sales, so to speak, right? I was a paper boy when I was 11. I sold shoes at the shoe store. I mean, anything that I could do that was tied to some sort of personal production, right? What I brought to the table, I was interested in. And and I worked at a, a local bank uh, when I lived in Michigan. And I noticed that all the good conversations were happening on the other side of this little glass wall where they were selling mutual funds. And as long as you could buy 
the Putnam Voyager Fund or Putnam Growth and Income Fund, then you were a good person for that person over there. If you want anything else, you would buy a CD or a savings account or something. Anyways, I, when it, this was all kind of happening while I was in college. So I, when I transferred to the University of Michigan and lived in Ann Arbor, I moved to a different branch down there. And I worked there for about another year, I think. And at the same time, there was an advertisement for American Express. And it said, if you can fog a mirror, you're probably <laughs> a really good financial planner. So come on in. <laughs> oh, that's so not true. But it's I'm funny. Paraphrasing. It's I'm paraphrasing. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, so you know, and we've talked about this openly. Our job, the, the way that our job was as financial advisors, and I'm using air quotes, from when I started in 1999, from when you started in 94, I think, something like that. Changed incredibly. Yeah. I mean, from that time until the late 2000, you know, 9, 2010 time period, was very heavily sales-oriented. And so it wasn't so much about, can you be a good financial advisor? It was more like, can you be a good communicator of our company's stuff? And we have this stuff we want you to put it in people's hands. Now, I do think that I'm very fortunate that I happen out of all those places in the entire world to land to land at American Express because they were and, and maybe still are now at Ameriprise very heavily focused on the planning side of things. And there might be a little twinge in there and go, yeah, it's a plan that says you should buy their life insurance or it's a plan that says you should buy their mutual funds. And I get that. But nevertheless... We did a lot of good work with the financial plans there. And I think learning it that way helped a ton. And I feel really fortunate for having gone through all of their training. But to be fair, the very beginning of it was not about how great are you at being a financial planner. It was how many phone calls can you make? And how many people can you get on the phone to convince them to come in to schedule meetings? Because you had no other way of doing it. I mean, they're really, there was well, the internet, but it wasn't a thing. But it know? also taught me something very important, which I totally agree with. I mean, for us, it was, I was on the phone, on the phone, on the phone, trying, just begging people to work with me. But you know what it gave me? It gave me a bias toward action and movement and not complaining when things aren't going my way about swinging again. You recommended this uh, coaching group that that I go to. I just got back from another one, and something I noticed about all the people Strategic in this coach, yep. yeah, all the people in this room who are successful entrepreneurs, they all have a bias toward action. They all are doers. Yeah. Everybody in that room who is a successful entrepreneur is a doer. They don't sit around and and whine about how things aren't fair. They do it, and they know sometimes things aren't fair. And don't get me wrong, they can complain about it, but that doesn't stop them from moving forward. So and that's what that well, first, that's what that first year taught me, that first yeah. couple of years. Yeah. And that's what I mean, like when we were talking at the very beginning about the person who's like, well, you know, which one of these is the best? Do I put it in this account, that account, that account, this account, that account? It doesn't really matter. It matters at the margin. And all the holier-than-thou finance bloggers and Twitter people out there will go, yes, it does matter. If you, you know, such a percent of extra tax, like I get it. It's the fifth. I know how to do math. It's the fifth most important thing. Probably better than a lot of people. But my point is, is that it's about put money away, (laughs) you know, put money in your 401k. I don't care if it's in the Roth or the pre-tax. I don't care if you put your money in your brokerage account. Don't do stupid stuff like buy a house you can't afford. 
don't get into credit card debt. Like these things are the bedrock for really good, sound, long-term financial decision-making. And I think, like you said, the doing part, because (laughs) as a strategic byproduct of that, I think, because everything was so tied to your personal output, right? You had to get Joe and his wife, Cheryl, to sign the form to pay you 500 bucks so you could earn, you know what I mean? Like, like all of that was like, it was a thing. And then it turned into good stuff for them too, obviously. Right. It was like, and then I got Joe and Cheryl to invest in their 401k. And then I got them to invest in their brokerage account. And then I got them to buy life insurance in case something bad happened and so on and so forth. Or pay off their debt or get a cash reserve or whatever. Absolutely. All of that was predicated on me and you sitting across the table and the salesmanship of like literally sliding the paper across the table going, now's the time to open the Roth, Joe. And that dead silence until you picked up the pen. And then you, you know, okay, if you think this is the best, yeah, I think it's the best, you know, but the other side of that was, I think, like you said, there's a nine to one odds the other way of the person going, yeah, this isn't for me. See ya. Yeah. And you're going, okay, next, let's go. Who's the next one? Who's, yeah. who, you know, I've, I've got to keep moving this thing along. Yeah. I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Now, the great news is, is that I think it taught me a really good base for communication and talking with people. And, but people today, like the people that are on my team that are financial planners, like they are, they are not salespeople. It's funny because I was listening to one of my employees talk to a client and it was really funny because she's like, okay, so uh, you need to save an extra $500 a month. So we're going to go ahead and just uh, get that started then, right? And I was like, dang, that's nice work. <laughs> and after we got done, I'm like, well, we call that the assumptive close. <laughs> she's like, oh, don't say that. I'm like, no, 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 no. You did the right thing. You know, people give it a bad connotation and it's the right thing. They needed to save 500 bucks into their savings account to get on track for their. So we're going to do that, right? I'll wait while you open up your payroll online thing. And you're, you're I'm like, dang, that's smooth. And you're also okay with talking about how that would work, you know, but, but going right yeah. to the, let's get it rolling is let's do it. Let's, let's get more. Yeah. Let's, let's but have the you, idea of, have you get more money for yourself? The idea of like sitting in a dark room and making phone calls for hours, 15 hours a week. How would you like to do that again? We have phone clinic on Mondays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Mine was every evening if we didn't have a meeting. Every Well, yeah, it was that too. It was, you'd have to manufacture appointments. So you didn't have, I'm waiting for my client to come in. I can't phone right now. Yeah. You know, just in case. I remember I walked into, uh, a Saturday morning meeting, you know, it's eight fifty or something. We're getting ready to start working and I'm in sweatpants and a t-shirt. And my boss goes, what are you wearing? I'm like, dude, it's Saturday. And he's like, go home and change and you can come back. Wow. Like I'm not changing into a suit on a Saturday. He's like, you are. I'll see you in a few minutes. And then it wrapped up. We went from nine till noon. And so at noon I'm like, he's like, where do you think you're going? By my clock, you didn't you didn't start getting on the phone until almost nine forty five. You got forty five minutes more. Lucky you. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, down memory lane. No, we could do those stories all day. Mine, mine actually, Gregory and I knew OG's had was going to be more fun. Mine was actually very straightforward uh, about how crooked it was. You're right; it was a very crooked path. 
I saw the movie Wall Street. Did you just say my path was very straightforward on how crooked it was? Yeah, because it's incongruencies in that. Aaron Sorkin did not teach you how to write that way. He talked about how crooked my path is. Yes, I was an English major in college. Yes, I came from a farming community. Yes, I, I, I was not great with money. Like all of these things are true, but the story about how I got where I was going, that part of the story, not as interesting. Um, the uh, I saw the movie Wall Street when that movie came Blue out. Horseshoe. When I was a senior in high school. Or something. Yeah. 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 I thought that movie was phenomenal. I became very interested in investments. My family didn't know, didn't teach me anything about investing. Good people. They, my parents didn't know anything about investing, but I thought that just seemed the pace I loved. I love the pace. I love the information. I love the fact they were speaking like a different language. I found all that pretty sexy. On the other side, something else I thought was neat was these people that would come on the the morning shows as I was getting ready for school. And I love the financial planner always seemed to have the tricks about, hey, if you even out your utility bills, that will make it so that you're, you know what the electric bill is every month and it makes it easier to save the same amount. So the key is to save. And I always thought that was, that was great. Or even the coupon clipping stuff, you know, I was like, God, these people seem to know all these cool ways for people to be able to save more money than they thought that they could, that that was so saving and investing. I found pretty, pretty neat. And then, um, when I was in college, I never really thought about that. I was going to be a great writer and, um, maybe a university professor teaching English. I was just about finished with college and I got a call from a friend of mine who said, and this is a direct quote, he said, we normally don't hire people like you, but I think you'd be good at this job. So I, I came in and, and it was actually, oh gee, my bias toward action that won the day. That and one other thing I was told when I started speaking on behalf of the company later on, which was that because I didn't know crap about money, when I would sit with a client and I was actually allowed to speak a little bit into my career, because at first you go into meetings and you don't really say anything. But when I could speak, I would talk about these things like the dude next door who didn't know a year earlier, I didn't know how they worked either. So I would always talk about them in these ways that were different. And when the, these PR firms started working with me on, um, on becoming a, more of a spokesperson for the company, that was the thing they said that I should always emphasize and never get rid of because too many people speak jargon. They don't talk about it. They don't have enough empathy about what people are going through. So uh, that was something that I always, I always kept in mind, but see pretty straightforward. I got a call. I answered it. Turned out I was now I do remember in my first year going into meetings and somebody would have at that time, they were all active mutual funds, right? Everybody was, it was, (sighs) don't say that. And the way people talk about oh, VTSAX, now people would say like, oh, the Oakmark Fund or the Contra Fund, <laughs> like, the, yeah, it's l- true. like the same stuff or Dodging Cox. And so I would walk into a room. All still good companies, by the way. Yeah. And I remember somebody telling me that they're like, so I've got uh, this fund. I got the Oakmark Fund. I got whatever. And I just had this blank look on my face. And the guy's like, yeah, uh, Oakmark. And I'm like, yeah, okay. He goes, you don't know the Oakmark Fund? I'm like, is it good? You know, I don't really care one fund versus another. And and I could see by the look on his face that it was something that I needed to know. So 
I had this kind of gross thing that I did. It's gross in retrospect. At the time, it was just what I needed. I needed to fill every available moment with learning because I knew nothing. So beyond all the testing that we had to do where you learned a lot and the classes that we took every day, the uh, same sales training that you and I, OG, talked about earlier, I also would always take financial publications to the bathroom or to lunch or wherever. I had, you know, we, we talked before with the Motley Fool stuff. I would take the Motley Fool stuff with me. I'd take Dave Ramsey. I'd take Susie Orman. I would take every, everything I could get my hands on that was uh, popular literature about, about money. And uh, man, it was like a crash course. So, ta-da. See? Not as exciting. Sounds amazing. Yeah. So, not as exciting. I don't know. Great stuff. I know it wasn't exciting either. Thanks for the question, Gregory. That's going to do it for today. Made a lot of great questions. Love our letters episode. It's been a long time since we've done that. Been only two days, though, since we talked about whose review is on the refrigerator. And this time it's Matt the Bomber. Matt says, I wear a bag on my head when I listen to the show. Five stars. That means he wants to be like you, OG. He says, makes a drive to work while I listen way more interesting. And I enjoy everyone except that one person. You know how I'm talking about they period, our period, the period, best period. I have no idea what that means. It probably means OG's the best. Probably. I would guess. They are the best. They. I don't know who the, the they is. It's, it's, it's probably all of us. But anyway, mom is very proud because it was five stars. And because cool. Matt wears a bag over his head. And finally, if you're looking for financial planning help in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients. The doors are open. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG to find out how OG and his team can help you with your money to do better. Do better. All right, Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Why, Joe, I'd be happy to tell everybody what they should have learned today. First, with the recent credit changes, it's likely that people with high credit scores will see a bump, while people who have fallen on bad times and have lower scores could see them lower further. Time to pay attention to your credit, people. See, that's some honesty right there. Second, the Roth 401k, that's a great idea. More honesty. But the big takeaway, turns out, Honesty is not the best policy. While Joe's mom looks terrible in those jeans, she replied that I look awesome washing windows. That's a lie. Fake news. And I had to give OG the five bucks back too and not even a finder's fee. That sucks. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahigh. Produced by Taylor Stevens and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and if you could only know what it really smells like down here. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. Have you ever asked yourself what wrong turn you made in your life that you ended up down here listening to us? There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. 
Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. Most, every movie I've seen so far this year, not most, every movie I've seen so far, I categorize as last year because they were all Oscar right. contenders or award contenders. This is the first movie I saw this year that is not an award contender. Stars uh, some little known people, but uh, mostly a gentleman named Matthew McConaughey. This is The Gentleman. I want you to play a game with me, Ray. I don't want to play a game. Oh, please. No. I said play a game with me, Raymond. Right. Lovely. I want you to imagine a character. Your boss, Mickey Pearson. You're too smart to be blackmailing us, Fletcher. Yeah. Sweet Mary Jane is my vice. Your poison, on the other hand is and always has been the destroyer of worlds. You're out of touch, and I would like you to consider an offer. I am not for sale. The plot begins to thicken. Now, I can't be specific about the heroes and zeros, but our protagonist is a hungry animal. There is a lot of money hanging in the balance. Our antagonist explodes on the scene like a millennial firework. And has indirectly started a war. I think you need to see this, boss. That's the one of my firearms. How do they find it? I'm making inquiries. <sighs> His name is <laughs> We're spelled with a PA, so it sounds like Please! Hurry for Hokanda Please. Sorry to beep out that end, but his name is pretty funny. This is a story, man, if you, if you like uh, movies about gangs and uh, gang wars against each other, if you're somebody that like Peaky Blinders or The Sopranos or anything like this, this is a treat for you. There's so many stars in this film. The number of people, of course, it's, it's directed by Guy Ritchie, a great director. I personally did not like his uh, Sherlock Holmes movie. But I know that a lot of people like what he did with uh, Mr. Holmes. The cast in this film, Matthew McConaughey, Henry Golding, who you may remember if you saw Crazy Rich Agents, uh, Colin Farrell, Michelle Dockery from Downton Abbey, Hugh Grant, so many big names playing so many, so many parts. Matthew McConaughey runs a gang that sells marijuana in the UK and uh, Hugh Grant is a private investigator who thinks he knows everything about everything. So he's trying to blackmail one gang, play the gangs off each other to make a bunch of money. Colin Farrell works with a bunch of uh, street kids in a gym to try to help them clean up their act. It is funny. It's fast pace. I was on the edge of my seat, lots of action, you always ask if there's explosions or people uh, shooting each other, OG. Lots of explosions, lots of people shooting each other, and a crazy twist ending that I didn't see coming. Loved it. The Gentleman gets a really good Rotten Tomato score, which is surprising for a movie in uh, January. 73% Rotten Tomato, 8.1 out of 10 on IMDb. I agree. Big thumb up. Go see The Gentleman. Okay. I will. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have 
served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend, OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate take a look at all the military appreciation month offers and their usual offers navy federal our members are the mission navy federal is insured by ncua equal housing lender